The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So, Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about listening. And as you know, we've talked about this before, that listening is such a powerful skill And it makes the difference between resolving conflict and not resolving conflict. And when you're in negotiations, any kind of negotiations, you have to really listen to the other party to be able to know what it is that they want and how you can meet their needs and how you can strategize for a really good negotiation um, agenda. So we're going to be talking with the author of this book, John F. White. He is actually co-author with Alexandra Takeda, and he is a coach. And the name of this book is What You Don't Know About Listening Could Fill a Book. And this is called The Leadership Edition. Let me tell you a little bit about John. I just actually met him, or by phone, um, through a very good friend of ours. And so that was really nice. He's right in Orange County, California, in Irvine. And John White began his career teaching communications, and then he moved on to build a small chain of travel agencies, which later sold for 10 times his initial investment. And then John followed that with 20 years as a successful top-level business leader in the medical device industry. And now he infuses work as an executive coach and professional speaker with the practical knowledge that he has brought from each of those past experiences. And his work has impacted leaders throughout North America, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. And he has a passionate interest in the behaviors necessary to provide outstanding leadership. John's professional journey has led him to focus on listening because he believes it is the skill that is fundamental to almost all other leadership skills, which I would totally agree with. And he is, again, as we said, the co-author of What You Don't Know About Listening Could Fill a Book. So we're just thrilled to have you join us. Thank you so much, John, for being on our show. I'm happy to be here, Amari. So tell us why it is that you decided to write this book. Well, some of it actually comes from my own experience. When I was an executive, as you mentioned, in the medical device industry, uh, I got some feedback from the people that reported to me that I was not very consensual. And uh, I was a bit shattered by that. And I explored what it would take to change that perception, and listening was the core behavior that I would need to improve. And then I found when I moved into the area of coaching other executives and leading executive retreats and working on strategic plans and 
whatever the business uh, that my clients were working on, I found that listening was often a core impediment to them being successful, whether they weren't executing well or they were having conflict. And Alexandra was finding the same thing and working with the people that she worked with. So we decided that we really ought to focus on listening, though it's been written about a lot. We wanted to find a very clear, practical way to help leaders become more effective uh, at what they do and very quickly. Yes, that is, you're so right. That is such a, a, an impediment. If people aren't listening, they really miss so much. They destroy relationships and they, you know, create conflict and they don't get what they want. So right. that I'm just thrilled that you have this book on this because it's clearly important. Now, in the, in the second chapter, in um, the second paragraph of chapter one, you mentioned that you faced a dilemma yourself when you began to write the book. And so what was that dilemma? Well, the dilemma is that we would ask people if they thought they were good listeners, and most everyone would say yes. And, but then we would say to them, well, do you know anybody who's not a good listener? And they say, oh, yeah, boy, a lot of people are terrible listeners. And so the dilemma is that when somebody's passing a bookstore and sees a book, what you don't know about listening, they don't see that that's them. Right. And so the only thing they could do is maybe buy it to give to somebody else. Well, it's a little offensive to buy as a gift <laughs> for somebody. <laughs> so we have this huge dilemma of how do you reach the person who really needs it? And that, so that is going to continue to be the dilemma, although people are responding really well. But it is a dilemma. Yeah, yeah. People think that they listen, but nobody else listens to exactly. them. Right. You know what I do in every workshop when I start teaching negotiations? I have people um, in pairs just introduce themselves to each other. They have to answer, like, you know, what's your name? And um, where do you work? And why, you know, what do you think is one of the best skills that you have in negotiation? What do you think you is your biggest challenge? And those are four things, and people can't remember them. I tell them, if you want to write something down, you can. And then they have to tell each other. And then afterwards, they have to um, say what they, you know, what they heard. And it's then they learn how hard it is. If they cannot repeat back what they heard, then they know that they really weren't listening. And that's how I kind of lead into the power of effective listening, that you really have to sit there and concentrate because it's so easy. I mean, when I'm sitting in a mediation and people are telling me their story and I have to hear the, you know, the plaintiff side and the defendant side or whoever I'm listening to, I have to listen so carefully so that I can reflect back what I thought I heard so that they know that I've been listening. Otherwise, you know, I'm not going to get I'm not going to get anybody to resolve this the issues. If I'm looking at them and my mind is somewhere else, I'm going to be in real trouble. <laughs> I'm going to get fired real quickly. So well, I think the thing that happens in those situations, that's a great exercise that you do, but people have this internal monologue that goes on that the minute the other person starts telling them about, well, where they went to school or what their background is, they're comparing themselves to that and what they're going to then have to say. Yes. And that's where their brain goes. And when your brain, your brain cannot do two things at once. And you cannot be absorbed in your own story while the other person's telling their story and then remember their story. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's why they have to see it for themselves because yes. they think they're a good listener and then they can't even say, tell back four things that the other person said. It's, exactly. it's very uh, insightful. Yep. So in your book, um, it's subtitled, I see right on the front, it's subtitled Leadership Edition. So 
do do the concepts you share apply obviously to everyone or what do you think yes they do apply to everyone but we call it a leadership edition because well two reasons one is this is the environment we have worked in for so many years both uh, when i was an executive alexandra was with the gap and some other formidable organizations before coming out on her own and then in our consulting work we're working in a corporate world plus once we put the concepts out there, what, what's a little different about our book is the first half of it is around concepts. But the whole book, including the latter half, is written in business language. So people can identify with it and hear that's what it sounds like where I work. So it's very hard to write the book from a personal point of view and sometimes have an executive understand or a leader understand how they could use it at work. So the whole, whole last half of the book is applying our concepts to things like hiring people, delegating to them, reviewing the performance, resolving conflict at work. Now, we do things like that at home, but it sounds different. Right. So this is a leadership edition, someday a personal edition. Right. And this is, you know, you have skill-building exercises, which are really important, and, and they all relate to to the workplace and trying to be a leader. And I think so many people right now who are listening were on the campus of the University of California, Irvine, which we're trying to develop leaders. People are in the business school. People are in various schools. They want to be leaders in their profession or at least successful. And we have, you know, business people driving by as well that are listening. So I think having leadership, anybody learning leadership skills is a great idea. I think whether you own your own business or you are a CEO or any other kind of executive, it's really important to, to know these skills. So, And you have a lot, a lot of little stories, too, about what happens at work. So I think people can relate to that. We, we try to use stories and we try to use situations they can identify with. And you mentioned, of course, students coming out of, uh, with a business education. We would love this to be a, um, a text that's uh, required of everybody getting an MBA because, again, that's a very vital point of life when we're going from uh, where we probably have developed uh, listening skills by chance, and now we're actually going to have to apply them uh, in a business situation. So we think it makes a, a wonderful text, actually, for somebody starting out on their business career. Yeah, and I was just recently looking at, um, you know, international negotiations, and they had a list of um, which company, you know, uh, kind of a comparison of, and, and I hate to do stereotypes, but a comparison of basically cultural listening, you know, and um, the United States was not very high on being good listeners right. in terms of what we teach in negotiations. However, Japan was extremely high in in that. So I thought that kind of, you know, when we're talking about international negotiations or even uh, domestic negotiations, for everybody negotiates, whether you're buying a car or you're buying a house or you're trying to get your spouse to do something or whatever, um, if you don't listen to the other party, you're not going to get what you want because you're not going to be able to understand what they need and what they want. And it builds that reciprocal courtesy as well. So it's that's why I think this book about leadership, it really does. Even the, the examples really apply to everything that we do in, in the business world. And I think you're totally right about uh, listening being the root. What we What we defer to when we're in negotiations, if we don't know how to listen, is we defer to persuasion. And persuasion can actually have the opposite effect on the other party. Exactly. 
Exactly. So if we're listening to someone, they feel um, that they are acknowledged and they they are, you know, once you're listening to them, they're more likely to listen to your Absolutely. perspective. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I should have had you write a chapter in the book. <laughs> well, I do this for a living, too, so that's why I got such a kick out of your book, because it really does relate to everything that we do in life. Yeah. So what stands in the way of all of us becoming better listeners. Well, it really is. I, I kind of alluded to that a minute before. We talk about the habits from an early age. The way we learn to listen is by copying. Where when we're when we're tiny, we we see our parents, and then we see our siblings, and then our friends, and maybe our teachers, and we don't actually get instructed in how to listen until much later age. So we've developed all the habits, and the habits become very, very strong. And then there's a whole bunch of things that are happening in terms of the chemicals in our brain and everything else, the way you know, we, we actually uh, get rewarded uh, somewhat chemically for talking about ourselves. And so there's a whole bunch of things that are going on that, that make it very difficult once we arrive at an age where we truly do want to listen or have very empathetic relationships with other people We've already learned a bunch of skills that are not exactly right. I mean, they're okay. Making eye contact with someone is helpful, but it can be faked. So standing in the way are a bunch of bad habits. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you you were talking in in the book about that that you could be you did an you had an exercise where you can um you know, you tell people to to look at each other and kind of stare at each other, but you can be looking at somebody and your mind is at the beach. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So that was I thought that was important. But it, you know, it is it, you know, if someone I had a friend that um used to drive me crazy because she would never look at you. You know, mm. only when you were talking. She would only look at you when she was talking. Mm. So that, I thought, was uh, kind of interesting. I didn't feel heard at all. Exactly. When... So eye, eye contact is useful. It's not like we would tell somebody, don't use eye contact. But on the other hand, you're not going to prove to somebody that you're listening by using eye contact. So that's what's hard about these habits we've learned. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I know it's not always possible, but for me, one of the things that's really important for me to do in mediation and, and kind of takes away from my eye contact is I take notes on what people are saying. So if I tell, for example, a plaintiff, I'll say, okay, I'm going to hear what your perspective of what's going on. And so I, I usually will say, I'm not going to look at you 100% of the time because I'm taking notes and I want to be able to read them. And I want to make sure that I understand what you're saying. So I will look up, but I will also take notes. And I look at them, and then I'll take notes, and I look, and I take notes, and I look and take notes, because afterwards I want to be able to tell them, this is what I heard. Am I, did, did I get it right? Did, did I hear this correctly? And uh, then they can correct me or not. So then they feel pretty legitimized if I've been able to tell them back what they said. Well, I think in your work you absolutely have to take notes. As a coach, I take notes so I can come back to the next conversation and reflect on it accurately. Uh, but I think you're doing a wonderful thing in being transparent about it. I, I really do want to make eye contact with you, but I feel an obligation to take these notes so I get things accurately. So I think people will understand that. For the average person, though, if they had no need and they weren't transparent about it, taking notes might look like a distraction and the person might not believe they're being listened to. And that's, a, that's a really good point. That's why I do because I don't want them to think that. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. 
So what do we need, what else do we need to do differently to convince someone that we're really listening? And we just talked just now about, you know, taking notes and then reflecting back, but you have a lot of other things in your book that are important too. Well, actually, we, we try to focus on one thing. There are a lot of, and all of them help to a certain degree, but the actual best way of indicating to somebody else that you have listened to them is to ask a question. But it's not just any question. It has to be a question specifically about something that they have said. It's not another uh, tangent. It's not another uh, what we call horizontal question that just asks them, like, what did you do today? What are you going to do tomorrow? What are you going to do the day after? Um, That's still about my agenda rather than the person who's speaking. But if I instead ask them a question that is very specifically about what they've said. So we really... We focus on three characteristics of a good question, and that's what the book becomes totally about. One of those characteristics everybody pretty well knows, but we show why it's more important to use. And we just got a letter from from a reader yesterday that said she had not been using that well-known thing for a long time, and she started using it this week, and it's totally changed your communication. The second thing is not uncommon, but we've renamed it for a very special reason. And the third characteristic is probably new to some people. But those three characteristics is the focus of the book, and we, we focus on it because we think very hard for an adult human being to change a lot of behaviors. But if we can change one behavior and really, really focus on it, then we can probably have some success. Yeah, when, you know, that makes so much sense. And you talk about the open-ended question and not the closed-ended question. Right. If, if you ask somebody, do you, you know, do you want to go to the movies, yes or no? What movie would you like to see? That opens them up to thinking, Absolutely. you know. Or if I'm sitting in a mediation and I'll say, well, what do you, you know, if I say, well, do you want to do what the other person said? That's going to be, this going to be no, right? It's exactly. going to be no. But if I say to them, okay, so what part of that proposal can you live with? And, that, and what's really interesting is when you ask them the closed question, it's an all or, uh, you know, all right. in game. Right. And so they... That makes it very difficult for them to agree, but when you give them that choice, almost, you, I, mean, I don't know what percentage you would put on it, but I bet 80% of the time somebody can find something right. that they could agree to. That changes the psychology of the conversation. Right, right. And, and also, you know, when, you're, when it's yes or no, you don't have to really think, right? You don't have to do that critical thinking. If someone asks you an open-ended question, you really have to think about it, right? Yes. You, yep. you have to really get that brain going and get creative. Right. And uh, I think that's what... Well, let's talk about those three things a little bit more specific so that people can know before they get the book. I, I know you gave us a little hint, but l- what, what are those three things? Well, the, the, the first one is open-ended questions. Right. And it's surprising um, how little we do of that. I mean, if you start examining our own conversations, I think in the work that you do, you've already got this, so this is probably not a problem that you have. The second is, and this may be a little different than your training, um, is that we talk about something called vertical questions. So if somebody said, um, you said what did you do on vacation? And the person says, well, I went snorkeling. Uh, what we very often do is ask horizontal questions. Well, what did you do the next day? Well, you really haven't even listened to them if they've said snorkeling. You know, why not stop there and go vertical? Oh, what do you like about snorkeling? Mm-hmm. Well, I like the fact that I can really get away from everything. Oh, what is it about your life that you need to get away from everything? Now, right away, some of us feel we're getting too personal with the person, but we don't have to worry about it. the person will tell us if we're getting too personal. Right, right, right. right. But we can go vertical a lot, uh, long ways. We believe 
that vertical questions allow you to sometimes go as many as six or even ten times deep into something where you really learn how a person thinks, how they feel, how they will act. So important when we're doing job interviews. So important when we're trying to give people a developmental review. So important when we're coaching them to better performance to go to that kind of depth. Now, the only difference with this, then, is commonly known language is we're calling it a vertical question rather than a probe. Right. You've probably heard of probing questions. The problem is probing questions have become to be understood as something that goes with the agenda of the person asking the question. Right. So right. it's the lawyer who asks the probing question <laughs> right. knowing that they're only going to ask what they know an answer to, right, right. To, to win a case. Right. So we didn't want to use that language, but it's very similar to probing except it's really without an agenda. Right. It's really about listening and finding. Somebody might say five things within a sentence that are all worth going vertical on. Mm-hmm. And especially as a coach, when you're really trying to help somebody yeah. to see what, what problems they have or what challenges they have or what values they have, that it's it's really important to go. And I, I like the, 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 the name vertical as opposed to probe. Probe sounds like a privacy invasion, yeah. whereas right. vertical sounds like, I want to deepen my relationship. I want to deepen my, my connection with you. I want to know who you are better. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious about you. Yes. And, and, you can, and somebody can shut the curiosity off any time that they want. And in, a, in a leadership position, it may be appropriate for you to say, I know it's kind of personal, but I need to know. Or in a personal situation, you might say, oh, I respect that, and, and, and you stop that line of questioning. The weird thing is everybody that we talk to at first says, well, boy, it sounds like we're getting pretty personal, but guess what? People like to talk about themselves, and they really enjoy when you thoughtfully ask these questions. Right. And, it, you know, it, it, you're not doing it like in a deposition where you're trying to find out bad things no. about them that you can use against them. And so. it forces you, if you really are curious, it's forcing you to listen because you're looking for where is that vertical link? Where am I getting the word that tells me, oh, I want to ask about the scuba diving. Oh, I want to ask when, when they're underneath the water what it is that they're enjoying. I mean, I could just say, what do you see? And they would say, well, I saw a lot of colorful fish. But that's, that's very activity-based. But I could say to them, what do you really enjoy about that? What is it that you're getting away from? Mm-hmm. Now I really get to know the person. Right, right. And those are great questions, like when you're going to a networking and you, you want to you know, like a networking breakfast yeah. for anyone, you know, because then you're not just sitting there like, okay, what do you do? Oh, you know, like, uh, how is that for you? You know, why is that a, a profession you chose? Or, you know, what what does that do for you? Or something like that. It really gets you deeper, like you said, to really connect at a human level, which I think is really wonderful. And you talked about those cultural differences and mentioned, you know, the Japanese being better listeners. Yeah. You know, that thing of being at a networking thing and asking, well, what do you do? quite American. Uh, there's many parts of the world where that's not a question that you ask. Right. So <laughs> it's interesting that we, we ask it, but we don't really then go any further. We don't really listen. In a lot of cultures, they think it's more important to ask about the person. Exactly. Exactly. So how long does it take to learn to listen the way you, you're prescribed in your book? Well, you know, we think that the average person actually takes to become aware that they have an issue learn a new technique, and then be able to sustain the change in behavior it takes about six months. Having said that, we've constructed the book in a way that you can start to get some immediate results from it right away. We got an email from a reader yesterday saying that they had started reading the book this last weekend, 
They made it through the first section. This week I'm practicing sharpening my listening skills by asking open-ended questions. I must say that once I became aware of this concept, I realized how often I ask closed-end questions and wondered how that makes my employees feel. I can only assume. Just today I used it in a difficult conversation around why I wasn't going to hire an internal candidate for a role. The conversation went really well. So here's somebody who used it literally without having read the whole book, right after that weekend. But I must caution that you can't read one weekend and go into the most difficult conversation in your life and usually have a good outcome. It really does take some practice. So with some, some wise use, I would say, about six months to really sustain it as a behavior change and not fall back into your old habits. Right, right. So it, it, it takes, like you were talking, it takes practice, Practice. Right? And, and I think, you know, when I'm thinking about listening, that it's easy to listen when there's no conflict going on. But these skills get more difficult when people are angry yes. and when people are having great challenges in their lives. So if you can do it when you're on an even keel and practice it, like you were talking about, you know, your this uh, executive was practicing it on why he wasn't going to hire somebody, or, you know, promote somebody. Um, that that was a little bit more difficult than just open ended questions. Yes, I would. If, if they had called me before, you know, going into that conversation, I would say that's not the best place to start. In fact, <laughs> the be- best place way to get started on this journey of becoming a better listener is to learn how to ask these questions, practice the exercises in the book, and then practice in a safe situation. Yes. You know, the first time I really started thinking about this, my wife and I take walks at the end of every day, and I would say to her, I've learned something new about listening, and I want to use it during this walk, and I want you to give me some feedback. So I'd make it very transparent, and I'm not coming in and doing something, and she's going, oh, what's he doing here? This sounds strange. I'm actually telling her I'm practicing something, so I can do it in a safe environment with somebody who will give me feedback, somebody that I trust and love. And uh, she would say, well, that, that didn't work so well for me, or this works well for me, and maybe do that before I go into the most difficult situation in life. I give this person over the weekend a lot of credit. Yeah. They went into a difficult si- situation, and it came out well. Yes, yeah, yeah. He was conscious of it, and he was, yeah. he, you know, so it worked well because he was really focusing on what he was doing. And I think what happens is when we, when we practice and practice until it becomes second nature, yeah. we can lose something you know, uh, when we're upset, right? right? We can, we, we're not necessarily the greatest listeners when we're upset about something. If, if your kid does something terrible and, and, and he's, you're not listening to me. Well, you should not have done that, you know? Well, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, that, that's and, when we, in our book, we talk about pausing. Right. And we think it's very important once the chemicals, you know, get going inside the body where you're having a lot of adrenaline, it's just really good to pause and even sometimes walk away from a conversation and uh, suspend it and come back when you can be more rational. Right. Breathe. Yes, but but breathe. I think it's, it's what's helpful is to have a strategy of yes. what to do, yes. you know, to, to take the time to breathe and then to, you know, listen, even if it hurts to listen or even if it's aggravating to listen. You know, one of the things that I, that I always have to tell people is, you know, because I'm that's what I do is conflict all the time. So when someone is speaking and the other one is getting upset, I go, look, this doesn't mean that you have to agree. It just means you're listening. So there's a big difference between listening just to listen and expecting someone to agree with you just because they're listening to you. Yes. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, um, what are some of the benefits that 
that people can get. I know we've talked a little bit about them. I know in, in for conflict, when you listen to someone, it, it automatically uh, de-stresses the situation because they're being heard. Right. Well, and that leads then to you being perceived as being consensual, to maybe being a team player. I think may, maybe more importantly, of being empathetic, which when I work with executives, sometimes they have trouble with that word. They think somehow that means being soft, and it doesn't mean it at all. Empathetic is forming relationships where you understand what somebody's situation is and can be supportive of them. And that's really important as a leader. On the short term, you can drive people to success just by being demanding, but you'll burn them out. In the long term, to have a really effective organization, you need to understand what people are doing, give them support when they need it. And that's empathy. And so it's uh, uh, a very important part of empathy is listening. And then there's another thing that we've learned from research that we didn't used to believe. I think we thought the, the people who were perceived as strategic were really entrepreneurial and they were geniuses and they don't need other people. Well, it turns out through research, when we look at highly effective leaders who are perceived as being strategic, they're also perceived as being good listeners. Perfect way to end because we are just out of time. I love it. So we have this book, What You Don't Know About Listening, Could Fill a Book by John F. White. It's the Leadership Edition. And, John, why don't you just give your website and it's time for us to go. Well, if you just take What You Don't Know About Listening and uh, uh, so www.whatyoudon'tknowaboutlistening.com, but don't put the uh, apostrophe in in the don't. All right. Get to our website. Okay, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. and visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thanks. Reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.